Our reading of scripture comes from Luke 2, verses 8 through 20. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled, filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you, for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that has been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is God's word. Thank you very much, uh, Jenny, for reading for us. Um, we are, uh, during this Christmas time, we are uh, trying to be amazed by Christmas. And here's sort of the, the, the reason that we're using this language. When you become particularly familiar with something, sometimes the amazingness, if that's a word, of that something is reduced. So the, the more familiar you are with it, the less it amazes you, the, me- the less uh, impressed you are with it, whatever. And uh, sometimes Christmas can be that way for us because Christmas comes every year and you go through an Advent uh, time of year and a Christmas time of year. The whole culture goes through it, not just the church. Uh, it becomes easy for it to lose its punch, lose its, uh, its, its luster in our lives. But now, that's not always the case. I, I mean, I would hope, anyhow, that those who are married, <laughs> that the more familiar you become with your spouse, the, the more in love you become with them, as opposed to the less in love you become with them. But unfortunately, um, our relationship with God is not always the way it should be, like a relationship with our spouse. And so, our understanding of Christmas can start to become very mundane, very boring, very not so exciting. And so we're trying to become amazed by Christmas in a new and fresh way this season. And we've done that over the last couple of weeks by looking at these different songs that, the, uh, that Luke records in his gospel. So we looked at the song of Mary, known as the Magnificat, uh, in Luke chapter 1, and also the song of Zechariah, which is called the Benedictus. 
And today, we're looking at the most famous song in the Christmas story. It's also the shortest song in the Christmas story. We're looking at the song of the angels. This is the song that they sang to the shepherds um, on that first Christmas night so many centuries ago. They said, Gloria in excelsis Deo, because of course, angels speak Latin, right? So what does that mean? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those on whom God's favor rests. And the, probably the most familiar phrase of Christmas is found in that song, right? It's that phrase, peace on earth. doesn't matter who you ask. You can ask religious people, non-religious people, varying religious people. doesn't matter what religious tradition they come from, Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, secular, whatever. Ask them around Christmas time, what is the meaning of Christmas? And they will generally, anyway, say something like, well, the meaning of Christmas is peace. Peace on earth. That's what Christmas is all about. And we see that everywhere, of course, on Christmas cards and on signs, excuse me, outside of churches and even, frankly, in in storefronts and that kind of thing. Peace on earth, peace on earth. Everybody's thinking about peace on earth at this time of year. But what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to say Christmas is about peace on earth? Or let me put it a different way. The angels on that first Christmas many, many centuries ago, what did they mean when they declared to the world, peace has come to earth, peace now rests on earth? What on earth were they talking about? Were they they talking about world peace? Were they talking about sort of peace in our personal relationships? Were they talking about sort of this inner peace and tranquility? What what were they talking about? And I think sometimes because Christmas is so familiar and because this phrase, peace on earth, sort of just rolls off the tongue so easily, we don't really have a clue what it means. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to think about it. We're going to think about this phrase, peace on earth. We're going to discuss... Uh, from this passage, we're going to discuss what it's not, what it is, how to get it, why it matters. What it's not, what it is, how to get it, and why it matters. All from this verse, verse 14 in Luke chapter 2. Okay. Oh, by the way, if you want like a little road map to follow along, there is a sermon outline uh, on the back of the bulletin. Some people like that to follow, helps them pay attention and not sort of fall asleep or wander or whatever. If that's your, your situation, knock yourself out and go ahead and use it. Here we go. What it's not, what this Christmas peace is not, what the angels were not announcing. And there's, there's three kinds of peace, I already mentioned them, that the angels were not talking about, although we as human beings sometimes think that's what they were talking about. The first one is this idea of world peace. Some people say that... that Christmas peace, the announcement of the angels, was about how God was sending Jesus into the world to bring political and military peace to our world. There's nations fighting against nations. There's there's people groups fighting against people groups. And Jesus has come to stop all the fighting. And I think you can make a case, uh, and a strong case, frankly, uh, that Christianity has since its its advent (laughs) into the world... Uh, 
actually has been good for the world and has made the world a, a less violent place and a less hateful place. And, and there are stories of sort of peace because of Christmas itself happening in this world. So for example, probably the most famous one is, if you're familiar with World War I, in 1914, during World War I, uh, the English and the Germans were lined up against one another on the Western Front, right? So you've got the English in their trenches, and then you have this space of land called no man's land, and then on the other side you have the Germans in their trenches, and they're fighting one another, and they're shooting at each other and sending uh, rockets at each other or whatever. I don't know if they had rockets back then, but you know, they're fighting. And then on Christmas Eve in 1914, without being told, all these soldiers uh, who had been killing one another uh, for, for months and months on end, all of a sudden, they all put their guns down. It's quite a remarkable story, actually. They put their guns down all along the Western front, front. I'm not saying everywhere, but in many places along the Western Front. And the story is, actually, that, that some German soldiers started singing, Oh, Holy Night. And because it was so quiet, the English soldiers could hear it, and they started singing too. And so there was this German-English choir singing Oh Holy Night, and at the end of it, some of them actually left their trenches, went into no man's land, and embraced one another, German and English soldiers. It's quite a remarkable story. Google it. It's true, because it's on Google. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. One night, man, one night, that's it. The next day, the guns came out, you know, the tanks started rolling, the gas started pouring in again. This peace was oh so short-lived. And those, you know, if you don't have your head in the sand and you maybe watch the news occasionally, you know. That's how it is. That's how the world is. There's conflict and war all over the place. And so if you think Jesus came to bring world peace or that's what the angels said he was bringing, then you got to ask yourself, did Jesus fail at his task? And the answer to that is no, not at all. Because actually, Jesus, in his ministry on earth, he said this was going to happen. In Luke uh, 21, verse 10, Jesus is talking to his disciples about what's going to happen in the future. And he says, nation will rise up against nation. There will be wars and rumors of wars until the end of time, until my return. And that's because Jesus didn't come to bring that kind of peace. So it's not world peace. Well, maybe someone says... Well, maybe it's relational peace. Maybe it's not sort of on this grand scale. Maybe it's more on a, on a, on a community scale. You know, like, like we have conflicts in our families, right? We have tension between us and our, our families or between us and our friends or our colleagues at work, etc. Christmas time, this time of year, can be a huge source of anxiety for some people because it means family get-togethers, and there's problems in their family. So when they get together, it's not like, oh, this is awesome. We're going to go to a Christmas dinner. It's like, oh, Lord, here we go, another Christmas dinner. I hope Aunt May doesn't explode, or I hope my sister doesn't throw something against the wall, or I hope my brother doesn't storm off mad again like last year. You know what I mean? And so, so sometimes people say, well, Jesus had, has come to sort of take care of all that tension and release all that tension. And again, the fact of the matter is, no, sorry. Jesus specifically says, 
that I have actually, in that sense, in relational sense, in terms of you with your family and you with your friends and you with your colleagues and you with your buddies and all that, I may actually bring more problems into your life than less. There's a place, again, in, in Luke chapter 12 where Jesus says this. Listen to this. Read this every Christmas before you go to your, your family Christmas dinner. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five and one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And sometimes that last one is very obvious. And I liked that joke. I just thought of it right now. But I don't want you to miss the seriousness of what Jesus is saying. He's, look, my coming is going to cause trouble. And the reason he says my coming is going to cause trouble, and there's going to be tension in families, is because Bob is going to put his trust in me and believe that I am the Son of God who came into this world to live for for sinners and to die for them on a cross, and and he's going to give his life to me, and he's going to give me his ultimate allegiance, but his brother, Sam, isn't going to. And that's going to lead to tension because they're going to have two different ways of looking at the world. They're going to have two different ways of defining what the good life is. They're going to have two different ways of, of understanding what really matters in this life, and every now and then there's going to be boom against one another. And so Jesus says, I I didn't come to bring that kind of peace. In fact, if you follow me, and if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I just want to be completely upfront with you. You embrace Jesus Christ and you say, I believe all that stuff the Bible says about him. Jesus actually promises you your life will not get easier. It will, in all likelihood, get harder. How's that for a sales pitch? That's his promise. Because of his claims. But that's the, that's the second of only three. There's three, or that's only the second, sorry, of three. There's three. The, the third one is inner peace. You know, there's people who say, well, you know, that's what you just said. That sucks. <laughs> so obviously, um, I'm hoping that Jesus is going to deal with that and bring me some inner peace in the midst of that. Right? Tranquility. Serenity now! That's what people expect from Jesus. After all, life is tough. It is a tough world out there. I don't know all of you and all of your stories, but I'm sure many of you, most of you, can give a story of suffering and of hardship and of of difficulty. There's a lot to worry about. And the thinking is, is that Jesus has come to kind of help us cope, grant us kind of an inner calm through Christmas, you know? Keep calm and chive on, whatever that means. That's what Jesus is all about. He's going to turn each and every one of us into a Yoda or a Master Ugwe or something so that we never, no one ever rattles us. And you know, it's true. Uh, to some degree, actually, it's very true. Jesus does provide this inner peace and tranquility. And I, and I want to make, make clear, there's a difference between suffering from anxiety as a disorder, and being a worry wart. And, and it's true that Jesus enables us. Yeah, Jesus has something to, de- to say about those who suffer wh- with anxiety. Don't, 
don't misunderstand me, but what I'm talking about right now is, is the worry wart, the person who, who has a future that is unknown and so it just turns them up and it gets them all worked up and they can't, they can't be calm and they can't deal with it, they can't handle it. Jesus says, I have come to bring you peace in the midst of that. As a pastor, I have spent many, many an hour sitting at the bedside of people facing their death, facing their death. They know it's coming. Can you imagine that? Most, no, some of you maybe have had this, but I can't even imagine that. What's it like? To be laying in bed saying, I know my heart is going to stop soon, and my brain waves are going to shut down soon, and I'm going to be gone, and I don't know what I face on the other end of that. How do you face that with calm? And I have sat with people who have faced that with a tremendous serenity and inner calm because of this Christmas peace, because of their relationship with Jesus. But here's the thing we need to understand. That peace, Jesus says, is derivative. That kind of inner peace is a secondary peace. It's not the primary peace. In other words, all these other pieces, world peace, relational peace, inner peace, all these other pieces that God blesses us with, they're rooted in one particular kind of peace that Jesus came to bring on that first Christmas so many centuries ago. So, what is it? What's that piece? Point number two, we need the context of the whole story. You can't get it just from this verse, okay? You kind of can, but you got to do some gymnastics. So, let's, let's just remember the context. Last week, we looked at Zechariah's song. Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who was, was a prophet who announced the coming of Jesus before Jesus came into the world. And Zechariah, in his song, as he looked at his son and said, this is what you're going to do as my son and as the prophet who was saying Jesus is coming, he says this. He says, uh, you are going to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. So the angels now, in their song, are going berserk. They're lighting up the night sky because of this promise of salvation through the knowledge of forgiveness of sins. Okay, so far so good. But that doesn't exactly clear it up because the question is, how does that bring peace? What's that peace that he's talking about? And for that, we go to the Apostle Paul, who in Romans chapter 5 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You hear that? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the peace that Jesus has brought to bring, a peace with God. It's like, hark the herald, angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. That's the peace that the angels are singing about in, the, in that field with the shepherds. They're talking about reconciling sinners to God. They're talking about bringing this peace between God and humanity. See, our primary problem, according to Scripture, the primary conflict that we have is not horizontal, okay? It's not Muslims versus Christians or Muslims versus Jews or Jews versus Christians. It's not primarily a horizontal religious thing. It's not primarily North Korea and the U.S. It's not primarily you and your mother-in-law. It's not that. 
The fundamental problem, according to the Bible, is between us and God. It's vertical. And listen, if you might be saying, I don't like that. I think that's unnecessary. I disagree with that. That's fine. Okay, you disagree with it. But just know this. When you get a greeting card from someone and it says on the front of it, peace on earth, that's what it's talking about. Might not be what the person who sent you meant, but that is what it's talking about. Because scripture says that we are at war in and of ourselves. We are in conflict. We are hostile to God. There's just no way around it. You know, in in Colossians, the Apostle Paul says this. (laughs) I mean, ah. I don't like even reading it, but this is what it says. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Hear that? Alienated from God, enemies of God. Now, you, it doesn't say that we, we don't have any relationship with God. It, just, it says we were enemies with God, that we were in conflict with God. We were warring against God. We were in rebellion against God. We wanted nothing to do with God. We were, we were fighting God in some way, shape, or form. That we're not for God, but we're against God. And maybe you're here this morning, you're saying, that just it sounds ridiculous. That does not describe me at all. I'm not against God. I just don't, and no disrespect, but I just don't care about God, or I'm, I don't believe in God, or I'm indifferent toward God, or I'm uninterested in God. I'm not God's enemy. I just don't have anything to do with God, really. He's not real to me. He's not part of my life. He's not, he's not relevant to my life. It's not that I want to get him. It's, I'm not Richard Dawkins, right, like writing books and going on tour and saying that religion is evil and bad. I'm just like living my life, doing my thing, and God doesn't have much to do with it. Well, here's the thing. According to Scripture, if, if you have actually met the real God of the Bible, that's impossible. You, you can't be indifferent if you have actually met the real God of Scripture. There's no such thing as just kind of being disinterested. There's no meh, you know, meh. According to Scripture, that can't happen. See, according to Scripture, you either love God or you hate God. You either love things about Him or you hate the things about Him. And I know maybe some of you are going, dude, that's not me. But think about this. Scripture says that God is sovereign. It says that God is in absolute total control of the universe. Nothing happens in this universe without him allowing it to happen. Now, if you love God, you take tremendous comfort in that. You don't understand why the world is the way it is sometimes. You don't understand why things happen to you or to people you love or, or in, in the universe or around the world. You don't understand how all that happens, but you at least say, I know that God is good and that all this stuff that's happening, it's not just random. It's not just chaotic. There's something going on behind it. I may not be able to figure it out, but I take comfort in knowing that it's not just like like pool balls on a 
on a pool table. They get whacked and they go ding, 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 and it doesn't mean anything. But if you hate it, if, or sorry, if you hate God, you hate the thought of his sovereignty. Because you say, that's unaccountability. <laughs> you think that's unfair. You look at the world and the world isn't the way it ought to be. Your life isn't the way it ought to be. And you're ticked at him and you say, well, what is this? Why are you doing this? I don't deserve this. This is wrong. You should change this. You should do it my way. You kick against the sovereignty of God. You hate the sovereignty of God. You don't want there to be a world in which there exists the sovereignty of God. Or how about this? Scripture teaches that you are saved entirely and completely and totally by grace. Meaning, that's, that's a Christianese meaning. Basically, there is nothing you or I could do to ever make God say, yes, you deserve my grace my, or my salvation. There's not a person in this room who can stand before God and say to him, look, I did the best I could. And I think that that was pretty good. And you owe me. Let me in. There's not a person in this room who can stand before God and say, look, look at that guy. Look at Hitler. Look at Paul Pot. Look at Jeffrey Dahmer. Look at Dellen Millard. Look at people like that. I'm not that. I'm not even close to that. I got to be able to get in. Not a single one. Because that would mean that there is something in us that deserves God's salvation. And Scripture says, there's nothing in us that deserves God's salvation. God just saves us by His grace. Now, if you love God, you say, that's awesome. Oh, I'm so thankful for that because I suck. I know I suck. I look pretty good in front of other people, and maybe I'm not a Hitler, but I tell you, deep down inside, the, the times that I have wanted to beat the tar out of that dude who cut me off on the way to work, or the times that I wanted to get with that girl who looked so good on the dance floor and she was not my girlfriend or my wife. I got it in me. But if you don't love God, you look at that and you say, it's too easy. You got to be kidding me. You telling me that a guy can murder a bunch of people, get caught, go to jail, live the life of rebellion, and then at some point, all he has to do is say, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, and bing, he's in heaven? That's too easy. I don't like it one bit. See, friends, when you've met the real God, there can be no indifference or disinterest. I, look, people say, I'm not at war with God, I just don't care about God. Well, with all due respect, usually they believe in a wimpy, namby-pamby kind of God that has got no teeth. He's got no godness to him. He's a nice little grandpa. Everybody likes your nice grandpa. My, gran my dad has teeth, okay? So my kids, <laughs> they have a grandpa with teeth. But you know what I'm saying. He doesn't impose his will on you. He doesn't make any demands on you. But the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible who says he will brook no impurity, a God of the Bible who says he will punish every sin, nobody ever gets away with anything, the God of the Bible who says I save people simply out of my own good pleasure and that's the only reason. You can't be indifferent about a God like that. 
And you can't ignore a God like that. And the angels are declaring that God has brought, Jesus has brought peace to us with a God like that. Well, how did that happen? How do we get that peace if that's the peace the angels are talking about? If we want to celebrate real Christmas peace, how is that possible? Well, you got to remember the whole line. Peace on earth and goodwill toward men on whom his favor rests. Or as the other translation we have here says, uh, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Have you ever thought of this? Like the, the peace that the angels are declaring is not a universal peace. It's for a category of people. Those with whom he's pleased or those with, on whom his favor rests. That means there's people who are in, there's people who are out. There's people who get the peace, there's people who don't get the peace. How in the world do you get this peace? So you don't get this peace through just through his showing up. Because he showed up in a manger, peace is ours. No, no, no. The only way you get this peace is if you understand why he showed up in a manger in the first place. If you understand his mission, if you understand the reason he came. And the reason is this, Jesus came to die. The prophet Isaiah, he pointed forward to it and in, in Isaiah chapter 53, he says this, the punishment that brought us peace, there it is again, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. You hear that? See, Christmas is about the Son of God coming into our world, which is a war zone. He left the peace of heaven and came into this war zone, and he was mortally wounded when we grabbed him and got our hands on him. He clothed himself in flesh. Jesus is God who came so close that he could be touched, and as soon as we could touch him, we grabbed him, we nailed him to a piece of wood, and we hung him up there, and we mocked him, and we spit at him, and we said, look at that fool. And he did that. He took that so that you and I could experience peace with God. The way you get that peace is you believe that story. You embrace that story. You hold on to that story. And you live out of that story. Last thing, why it matters. Why does this matter? Here's why it matters. It matters because all the peace that we're after, the world peace, the relational peace, the inner peace, it all depends on that one. And you're thinking, how is that possible? Well, first of all, let me just quickly say about the world peace. Christmas means that one day there literally will be absolute, total peace on earth. Jesus Christ hates sickness, he hates poverty, he hates oppression, he hates warfare, and the promise of Christmas is that he will one day put it to an end, and so you and I, we can work for it now and not run out of steam and not become cynical and not give up and say, forget it, I tried, but nothing ever changes. Because a Christian realizes that, look, the only way it's finally, completely, totally going to end is when Jesus returns. But I know that it will finally, completely, totally end, and therefore I can keep going. 
Any of you familiar with Brian Stewart? He used to be senior correspondent at the CBC. Very, very well-respected journalist. Very well-respected journalist. Now teaches at the Monk Center for International Studies at U of T. Brilliant guy. Went all around the world, and he went to war zones, and he went to famines, and he went to the worst places on earth where all the worst stuff was happening. And he tells the story of how everywhere he went, the first people he met there were Christians. They were there first. And the last people to leave were always Christians. They were the last to go. And for the longest time, wherever he went, it was uncanny. Ran into Christians, doing good work, trying to bring relief to suffering and stop wars and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and when everybody else kind of uh, tried and, and, and failed and gave up, they stuck it out. And some of them just for decades, grinding it out without anybody else knowing about it. They just quietly and faithfully continued their work. And he could not understand it until he came to realize that it was their faith, it was their belief that one day this all would end. And so their work now on Christ's behalf was not in vain. It had such an impact on him. Brian Stewart converted. He became a Christian. A lot of people don't know that, but he's a believer. And that's why. What about relational peace? Well, (laughs) why do we fight? Why do we not get along? People slight us, people hurt us, people, look, people disappoint us. People are constantly disappointing us. Even the best people disappoint us. And when that happens, tension is created and sometimes even relationships are broken apart because people can't give us what we want. But in the gospel, you get what your heart most deeply wants. You are loved to the skies, despite yourself. You experience the unconditional, always and forever love of your creator who knew every single thing about you, who knew every failing, every shortcoming, every disgusting thought that ever ran through your head, every bad deed you ever did when you thought nobody was looking. He knew it all. And despite it all, he came and died in your place anyway because you cannot exhaust his love for you. And when that sinks into your heart, you can actually start to be what you want other people to be. Reliable faithful, there, you know? You can be the kind of person who, who, who can forgive others when you're so disappointed by them. And also the kind of person who's so quick to repent and say sorry when you disappoint others. And then the last one, inner peace. You know, when you're reconciled to God, you do discover that God is for you. That's what you discover. That's, that's really what you discover. When, when you're willing to admit that you need his salvation and you embrace that, the greatest discovery that you make, that some of you need to make, you haven't made this discovery yet. Deep down in, you know that movie, uh, A Few Good Men? That line, deep down in places where you don't talk about at parties? deep down in places where you don't talk about at parties, 
you think God's against you. If he's there, he's got it in for you. But when you see the Son of God dying on a cross for you, you, you realize, you're, you, you go, holy smoke, he's not against me, he's for me. He's for me. And he is sovereign, and he's in control of everything, and he is Lord of the universe, and that means that, that I don't got to sweat it anymore. I don't have to understand everything that happens to me, but I certainly don't have to freak out over everything that's happening to me because he's got me. I can believe that. I can face anything. I don't have to be the judge of how things ought to go in my life anymore because the judge is my Father in heaven. I, I'm, I'm probably just going to quote this phrase from... Charles Spurgeon every Christmas uh, because I love it so much. He's sometimes referred to as the Prince of Preachers. And this quote is on the front of your bullets and I'm going to close with it. Emmanuel, God with us. It is hell's terror. Satan trembles at the sound of it. Let him come to you suddenly and do you but whisper that word, God with us, and back he falls, confounded and confused. God with us is the laborer's strength. How could he preach the gospel? How could he bend his knee in prayer? How could the missionary go into foreign lands? How could the martyr stand at the stake? How could the confessor uh, own his master? How could men labor in that one word, if that one word were taken away? God with us is eternity's sonnet. Heaven's hallelujah, the shout of the glorified, the song of the redeemed, the chorus of the angels. Feast, Christians. Feast, you have a right to feast, but in your feasting, think of the man in Bethlehem. Let him have a place in your hearts. Give him the glory. Think of the virgin who conceived him, but think most of all of the man born, the child given. And I finish by again saying a happy Christmas to you all. Heavenly Father, amaze us by Christmas, we pray. Thank you that he came as a baby, died as a man, rose as a king. Thank you that he now reigns over all things and we can trust in his love and we can trust in his provision. Help us, Father, to believe the gospel, to believe that peace on earth is possible and help those, Father, who maybe have tried to be indifferent toward you because they just not, have not really reckoned with the real you. Help them to do that. Help them to face who you really are and to find out and discover that you're actually for them, not against them. In your son's name we pray. Amen.